movie reel of all the things you wanted to do, yet just simply didn't have the time. And in that moment, you resolve to give tighter hugs, more I love yous, and longer goodbyes. It is moments like these that make tangible the truth that our time is limited, and we panic. We haven't been doing the things that are most important, but rather giving ourselves to trivial pursuits like pleasure and comfort and security. We realize that we've been putting off the things that we should have been doing and now must seize every moment because time is short. For many of us, however, time seems to be in abundance. At least that's how we act. We put off until tomorrow what should be done today with the assumption that there will be more time to act later. In fact, I believe most of us do not operate with an impending sense that time is of the essence, but instead procrastinate away life. Procrastination is a prideful view of time that overestimates the quantity and undervalues the immediacy of obedience. Putting things off has been a way of life for me. It manifested itself very early in my life, mostly through school, because I didn't procrastinate playing baseball. I didn't procrastinate playing football. I didn't procrastinate hanging out with my friends. I procrastinated in the things that I should do and needed to do, but didn't want to do. This probably doesn't describe anyone else in here. So just humor me as I tell you about cramming for tests, doing homework in homeroom, and waiting to the last possible second to write that paper. And today, I'm actually no better um, oftentimes, but instead of schoolwork, it's relational. I can get busy in my head mashing together work schedules ministry schedule, school schedules for the kids. And, but now it's different because we're on summer schedule, which was great at the beginning of the summer because you had all hope and anticipation of how much it would free you from the schedule of the, the, the school year, but yet it's equally as binding and terrifying. <clears throat> but I'm blinded by the busyness and can't see how my marriage, my parenting, and friendships can suffer It's these relationships that I would say that I most value, but in reality, I can push off investing in others because, well, they'll always be there. When time is not of the essence, we wait and do not act. But it's just not me. Many of us are procrastinating right now. Here are some examples. Wives, are you withholding forgiveness from your husband? Has he hurt you in the past and now you want him to feel the pain that he has caused you? By not acting in forgiveness, you are procrastinating in showing grace to him. And the longer that you wait, the harder it will be to reconcile. Husbands, are you chasing after your wife? Many men fall into the rut of eat, sleep, work. Eat, sleep, work. 
And anything that's outside of that pattern just blows our mind, right? And causes mental breakdown. Therefore, you push off things such as date nights, communication, spiritual leadership, emotional connectedness. Are you delaying connecting with your wife out of a sense of, well, she'll always be around? Church, have you neglected to involve yourself in the church because of outside constraints? Will you come around more when the sports season is over or work around the house lets up? Will you tithe more when you have a better paying job? Will you offer more encouragement when you have all of the right answers? But what if I told you, in fact, time was of the essence? You know that you are not promised tomorrow. Do you know that there there is coming a day when God will call all of us to account for the deeds that we have done here on earth? And on this day, there will be no more time left to act. Would that change your view of how you act here and now? In the passage today, Paul is addressing the concerns of the Thessalonian church about the coming judgment that will be ushered in by the return of the Lord. Paul would have taught them that while he would, taught him, them that while he was in Thessalonica about the impending day of judgment, and they seemed worried, anxious even. It's as if he had said, "You have cancer." And they say, how long, Doc? How, how will I know it's coming? Will it be painful? And what Paul says is, I, I don't know when it's coming. But it's certain that it is. So start living your life in expectancy and taking hold of each moment as if it could be your last. He is using the doctrine of final judgment to encourage the church to action, to urge the church to encourage. Instead of bogging down in the pain of judgment, Paul speaks to their hearts to encourage a life devoted to Christ by saying the judgment is coming and time is of the essence, but Christ died for you. Therefore, live abundantly now. Today is not about fear. It's about faith in Christ's work, hope in his return, and a desire to give your life over to this truth. And my prayer is that it will encourage our church to take hold of the time we have by living in light of eternity. If you will, open your Bibles and let's get started in verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Before we get too far in the text, uh, let's be clear that the events of chapter 4 that we went over two weeks ago are actually different than what we'll be discussing Today, The end of chapter 4 talks about the rapture of believers when Christ returns and the dead in Christ will rise first to be with him in the air. And then those who are still left alive will rise also. Uh, This will initiate the forever kingdom that Christ is coming back to install. 
Paul then shifts gears in verse 1 of chapter 5 and uses the transitional phrase, now concerning, which he does often in his writing. So, now concerning the day of the Lord, let's talk about that. That's what we are, it is in focus today. The day of the Lord is the day fixed and known only by God the Father, when the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will return to sit on His throne, and all will stand before Him in judgment, the living and the dead. God will gather the nations to be judged in wrath, and punishment will come upon the enemies of God. The Old Testament has much to say about this. Isaiah 13, 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Zephaniah 3, 8 says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Joel 1.15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And Isaiah 13, 6 through 9. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. On this terrible day, the world will be judged based on its deeds with only two categories to fall in, righteous and unrighteous. And a quick reading of Romans 3.10 says none is righteous. No, not one. And in Romans 3.19 says the whole world may be accountable to God. Yet this day plays out different for those who are in Christ. Amen. Amen. Paul would have told them this while he was in Thessalonica. That deliverance from this day can be found in Christ Jesus and in Him alone. He tells us in this, in chapter 1, verse 10 of, of 1 Thessalonians. He says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, Paul answers their question with a non-answer. I feel like Paul answers in such a way as to not play into their anxiety, nor to their procrastination. He didn't say, well, the Mayan calendar says. Or he didn't say, well, in 10 years, the Lord will return. I think that's for two reasons. Number one, Jesus said, Jesus, not Paul, Jesus said, no one knows but the Father in Matthew 24. So anything that he would have said would simply have been a guess. Number two, this would have played right into their hands. 
If you knew when the day of judgment would come, wouldn't you be on your best behavior? Wouldn't you, like a procrastinator like myself, wait as long as you could to get right with the Lord? He was not going to give them that pleasure. I told you that it would come out of nowhere, he says, and like a thief in the night. Here he's using Jesus' language when Jesus says in Matthew 24, 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had not known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Bible never gives dates, only a promise. Christ will return in glory to call out his children and to set up his rule on the earth and to judge the world. And it's best for the church when it's not waiting idly by like a procrastinator. Or on the other hand, running around following all the YouTube hypotheses. Is that right? How do you say that? Hypotheses. But rather eagerly expectant. The teaching of impending judgment is not one to incite fear and retreat, but holy living and hope in Christ. Though Paul doesn't say when, well, he does say how, right? Like a thief in the night. And as labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. The problem with thieves is they don't tell you when they're coming right? It would kind of defeat the purpose if you got a note in the mail saying, hey, tomorrow I'm going to be there. So if you don't mind, set everything out where I don't have to rummage so much. (laughs) Likewise, Paul is saying that the day of the Lord will be unexpected. We won't know when he is coming. Also, he compares it to labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. And I know you're glad that I'm up here to describe that for you because I have three kids. I know about labor pains. My wife told me about them. Um, I have been told they are unavoidable. Once labor begins, your body kind of tells your... you, your body kind of tells you to step out of the way. I've got this under control. And it just takes hold of you and does what it wants. And once they begin, there is no escape. Such is the day of the Lord. God's final judgment upon man will come unexpectedly and the ramifications will be unavoidable. In verse 3, Paul says, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. What a stark difference that is. Peace, security, sudden destruction. The RMS Titanic was the largest ship afloat in 1912. It could carry 2,200 people, thought to be unsinkable, and touting such advanced safety features as watertight compartments and remotely activated watertight doors. Much pomp and circumstances surrounded the maiden voyage of the ship. 
I know most of you have seen the movie. I'm not going to reenact it. <laughs> but you have to remember the beautiful ball gowns, the chandeliers, the grand staircases, the ultra-rich on the high decks of the ship, and the ultra-poor in the bowels. But just five days into the journey at 11.40 p.m., the ship struck an iceberg that caused the ship's hull to buckle inward, opening five of those 16 watertight compartments, thus filling them with water and capsizing the ship within two hours. The unsinkable modern marvel was sunk in two hours. Peace and security in this world are blinders to the truth. The world would have you believe that these things should be sought after with your whole life. And I'm not saying they're wholly bad. We do like peace, don't we? And who doesn't like the warm and fuzzy feeling of sitting in your home with the deadbolts locked, with the house alarm on Fort Knox in Fayetteville, Georgia? It makes it seem kind of silly sometimes. <clears throat> the problem with them comes when we spend our life seeking them above God. In fact, peace and security can cause us to be indifferent to God. Fayetteville, Georgia. May we not walk in our clean houses and in our clean streets and not know our utter dependence on the Lord. These things do not shield us from the wrath to come, but only blind us to what's important. We can look at the news for the past several weeks and be in utter dismay of the destruction and chaos that is going on in our world. The remedy to that is not deadbolts and house alarms. The, the remedy to that, what, what gives us escape from that, must only be in Christ. May they kill us. May, may, may our possessions be taken away. But may we be held in Christ. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for this day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Do you see how Paul comforts his young church? Destruction, thieves, labor pains, all of these are scary illusions and certain to come. In fact, in light of their current circumstances of trials and persecutions, some of them thought they were in the midst of the judgment of the day of the Lord right then. But Paul lovingly tells them who they are and how to walk that out. First, Paul says... They are of the light, but you are not of darkness. 
the people who are ignorantly walking around in peace and security because of their indifference towards the Lord, those are the ones whom the wrath of God is coming for. But you, Thessalonian church, are not like them. They are of the darkness and you are of the light. This light and darkness contrast reminds me of John 3, 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest their works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The light Jesus Christ has come into the world, but the world rejected him and continued in darkness. In fact, isn't that where most of our sin resides? We're all sinners in here. This is a a safe place to admit that. Yet most of our sin is not of the outward nature where we need to call the police on you right now or enact church discipline right after church. but it's done in the dark. What differentiates us from unbelievers, though, is not our moral superiority. It is our desire to walk in the light and let the light of the gospel shine in our dark places to cleanse us from all sin. Paul says, this is you. You guys are walking in the light. Next, he moves on to sleeping versus being awake. Notice then his use of so then. It's easier for me in my mind to to, to insert therefore. So let's try this. You are of the light, therefore be awake. Many of you have had to stay up all night for one reason or another. And at some time mid-morning, you crashed on the couch. But did you notice something? That sleep wasn't all that good, was it? In fact, if you weren't careful, the light comes streaming in from from through that tiny little crack in, in the shades to wake you up. This is because the day is not meant for sleeping, but for work. In a spiritual sense, Paul is telling this church that the day of the Lord will come. And we should be about doing the work that God has prepared us to do. He says, you are being the church. You are witnessing to the lost. You are ministering to the sick and the poor and the needy. You are worshiping the Lord and trusting in Him for salvation. This is good and right, and this is what children of the day do. And by doing these things, you will be alert and prepared for this day of judgment. Third, he says, you are being sober. Or he says, to be sober. He did not say, be a teetotaler. And he did not say, abstain from all alcohol. But he said, be sober or sober-minded. When drunk, you often do the things that you wouldn't normally do. Such is the case with sin. Paul says in Romans 7, 19 and 20, For I do not do the good I want... But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, 
It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Have you ever noticed, probably not you, but someone else who continues to drink more and more, that they have less and less control? It's the same with sin. We give it an inch and it'll take your life. You tell yourself the innocent flirting with a coworker or a Facebook friend will never lead to an affair. One more drink will never lead to a violent outburst. Watching a little porn at night after the wife and children go to bed will never lead to a divorce. Just one more hit of meth will never lead to a toothless, homeless existence where you will do anything for one more hit, such as sin. This is why we must be sober. Just a little is too much. We must guard our hearts and our minds and our mouths and our bodies from sin. But how? How do we do that? Paul says, arm yourselves. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope for salvation. Do, do, you, feel, do you feel his excitement building? Can, can you see a smile coming upon his face as he begins to share the gospel with these, this church? He's saying, since you belong to the day, be sober. How are you going to do that? You can't do that on your own. You can't white knuckle your way through this. It's through faith and hope and love. This is where we get past the white knuckling and the sin patterns and also how we get past bitterness and anger. Faith, hope, and love. We must have faith in the work of Christ that He alone lived perfectly and died in our place and for our sins. And through His resurrection and ascension, secured for us a place with Him in His forever kingdom. We have faith that His blood washes away our sins and gives us the ability to break the bondage of sin via His victory over Satan, sin, and death. Our hope is serving God and serving others. Oh, I'm sorry. Our hope is then uh, that we are hidden in Him and saved not only to eternity, but also to a holy life of serving God and serving others. Both of these produce a love that is unshakable for our Savior who purchased it for us and for those in the body of Christ whom have been purchased also. This to me is the epitome of biblical counseling. This to me is the reason why I love to stay up late on Wednesday and Thursday nights and invite people into my home that I can encourage them that you can't do this alone. Stop trying. Stop spinning your wheels for it's only God who saves even if you laid down alcohol, even if you never looked at pornography again, you still are not saved but through the blood of Christ. I love to do that. And Paul says you get to as well. This ramp up 
leads us to verse 9, I think, which is the climax of this whole section. You are children of the day. Be awake. Be sober. Put on faith, hope, and love. For you're not destined for wrath. Destruction is coming and it's not for you. The God of the universe against whom you have egregiously sinned and rebelled against and by whom judgment is coming upon the world in His wrath and fury has chosen not to punish you. Glory to God. Isn't that amazing? Paul is saying that they can put on faith and love and hope because wrath is not coming for them. But how does Paul know that? On what does he base it on? What if Paul said next that the wrath will pass over you because of your past performance? Well, that will be terrible news to the Thessalonian church who most of them spent their lives previous to their conversion worshiping in pagan temples, giving offerings to the gods of sex. And it would be bad news for you and I as well. Just look at me. Just look at you. You don't measure up to God's standard. And neither do I. Well, what if he said, okay, okay. Wrath will pass over you because of your future performance. We'll forget all that has happened. Zero sum. Now go and sin no more. And you will be saved. Well, just look at my past performance. I can't do anything right. This would be bad news. And there is no hope in that. Then what would be solid enough of a foundation for Paul to say confidently that you are not destined for wrath? He goes on, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. It's only through the precious blood of Christ that they can be saved in the wrath of God can pass over them and be placed on Jesus. He explains this in 1 Thessalonians 1.9b. He says, How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In a pagan city full of idols, Temples to sex and pagan practices. These people turned from their pagan ways toward God with faith in His Son for salvation from the wrath to come. Did you just hear that? They repented of their sins and they put their faith in Christ. It's a repenting of our sin. It's a turning from our sin and putting our faith in Christ that Christ alone has paid for that sin for us that is our salvation. Their salvation was through grace and by faith. What an unshakable foundation our hope of deliverance must be founded on. Good works are not enough. Moral living can never attain to the standard set by God. It is only, 
only, only through faith in the Son of God and His work that we can be saved. And you can. Listen, listen to me closely. You are not too deep in sin for the hand of the Lord, for the hand of the Lord not to pull you out. To, to turn to God even now in the depths of your sin and cry out to Him in repentance for what you have done and in faith that Christ's blood has cleansed you from that, that faith that Christ has taken that wrath from you, you can be saved. Your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin combined together have no strength against the power of the cross of Christ and your faith in Him that He had to die for you. But through His death, God placed His wrathful punishment not on you, but on His Son, and on taking your wrath, that punishment for your sin, so that you might be saved. This is not a song and dance. This is not a show that we put on. This is your life and your eternity. The time is short and your future hangs in the balance. Accept deliverance today and escape the wrath to come. Paul goes on to add as if more comfort is needed so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Here is our hope. Praise to God in his good purpose and sovereign will that our salvation and ultimate home are not based on our performance, but on Christ. And this is the good news, for time is short. Christ already did the work, and through his work we may be secure in him through this life and beyond. Meaning, if the doctor is right and our time is short, there is nothing more we must do to earn our salvation than placing our hope in Christ. And if we pass on before his coming, we can pass in hope that we are living with him in his forever kingdom. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be crying, nor pain, nor mourning for the former things have passed away. Our forever reality is a place of peace and security like no other. But that's not even the best part. We will live with him, Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There's hope in the death of a Christian, and we are sad, but oh, the paradise that awaits. This means that we don't have to live our best life now because our best life is to come. Now we can give it away. We can serve. We can sacrifice. We can humble ourselves. Instead of being first, we can be last. He is with you now in your trials and afflictions. But oh, the day to come. What a glorious day. But wait. This hope produces, produces action today. Not waiting for eternity, but today. Here we go, church. Verse 11, Therefore, encourage 
one another and build one another up. Just as you are doing, an end is coming and many will be judged by wrath. But not you, Christian, for Christ has stood in your place and died for your sin, that you might not taste wrath. Therefore, do not waste today. You have no need to procrastinate. You have no need to fear because God has hidden you in Christ. Therefore, encourage one another in this and in the grace and mercy you have received. I've been praying all week and asking this, praying over this and, and, and asking, to whom does this apply this week? To who spiritually and then to who, how can we as a church also respond? If this applies to you, do not delay. Let the Holy Spirit lead you in this application in your life right now. Husbands, chase after your wives. Love them with all of your might, for this is a picture of God's love toward us. Do not exploit her insecurities for your gain, but assure her that her hope is not in her perfection in this life, but in the perfected one. Bathe her in the word of God, which is the salve to her wounds. Her time is short. Wives, if you ever wanted to encourage your husband Forgive him. He may have sinned against you and hurt you, but if he is in Christ, the wrath of God has passed over him. Why does yours remain? Your mantle of unforgiveness is heavy and your scorn is fierce. I'm not telling you to condone his behavior. I'm not saying that you're a robot and can heal overnight. I'm saying that you can walk out the truth of the gospel in the passing over of the wrath of God by forgiving and beginning the process of healing. Men, outdo one another in showing honor. Men are more insecure than women. Just think of how we have to beat our chest to show you how manly we are. Oftentimes our culture encourages us to put down one another and to one-up one another. Men of this church, outdo one another in showing the grace of God and how it applies in the lives of your brothers here in this church. Church, You say you want to do something. You say you need something to do. Encourage one another and build one another up. This is your ministry. This is done in the context of community. Be a vital part of your community and the Sunday gatherings and the weekly get-togethers by being quick to encourage someone. We are a community of hurting people clinging desperately to the cross. We need to be pressing forward 
along with each other as we minister to each other, showing love, building up in faith. Also, it is our charge, Christians, to tell others the good news. That they might believe and be spared the wrath to come. This is not for our own safeguarding, but should well up inside of us and explode outward the love that we have been shown and the mercy that is available through Christ. Don't wait. Time is short. Offer people in your life this week the gospel of Christ Jesus. Offer them a way out of the path of the wrath of God with Christ through faith in Him. Let's pray. Father God, may Your Spirit now be ministering to us May we take deep in our heart and our soul the great love in which you loved us while we, while we were still sinners. How that wells up inside of us faith and hope and love and what we can do about it right now. How we can live as your church walking out your will right now while being eternally minded and mindful of the limited time we have. May your spirit minister to us now. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.